If you've ever thought of quilting your own projects but just don't know where to start, I have the perfect first steps for you. I've put together a PDF guide. I call it Three Steps Toward Freehand Freedom. These are the baby steps, but they can help you move past your overwhelm and show you that yes indeed, freehand quilting can be learned. So if you'd like to snag this PDF, there's a link in the show notes, or if you're an Instagram user, just message me three steps. That's the number three, S-T-E-P-S, and I'll send you that link. Let today be the day you get started. The catch was you had to shower quickly because your water was limited. When the bucket ran out, hopefully you had all the shampoo out of your hair or you were out of luck. Welcome to Measure Twice, Cut Once, the podcast where we hear quilters and other crafters' stories and draw encouragement and even life lessons from them. I'm your host, Susan Smith, coming to you from my long-arm quilting studio, Stitched by Susan. Here I spend lots of hours doing freehand edge-to-edge quilting. If you're not a quilter and those terms mean nothing to you, it's basically doodling on a quilt top with a 50-pound pencil with needle and thread attached, at high speeds, I might add. This week, I've been doing a whole lot of live streaming, which in my mind is a gamer's paradise, but it turns out there are lots of quilters who stream too. I'm very much an introvert, so it's been a great surprise to me to find that I thoroughly enjoy doing these interactive broadcasts. In them, I'm usually quilting one full project in real time from beginning to end. All the thread breaks and the oopses are included, and viewers are able to ask questions and vote on choices and just generally discuss the project in hand. So it becomes this very satisfying quilting bee sort of event. So if you're interested in viewing some, check out my Facebook page, Stitched by Susan, or my YouTube channel, the same name, Stitched by Susan. Today... I'm celebrating the very first podcast episode, and so it's therefore very special. So I've invited my sister Mary to join me virtually in my studio. We're going to fill our coffee cups and reminisce a little about our childhoods, which were kind of a throwback to pioneer days, about learning to sew on a treadle sewing machine, and how quilting is in our DNA. Today's Pins and Needles is brought to you by The Will and Dave Show. Hi, I'm the Will half of The Will and Dave Show. A short little podcast that myself and the eponymous Dave like to record talking about the things that really matter to us, whether that's social, political, or pop culture. Usually we don't see eye to eye, but more often than not, we can find some common ground in there somewhere. And now, back to pins and needles with a quick tip for all you sharp quilters out there. If you're a quilt maker and you're taking a quilt to a long armor to be quilted, I have a couple of thoughts for you. One is that you would trim your threads, any loose threads that are on the back of the quilt. You've probably heard this one before, but I can't overemphasize how important it is, particularly if some of the background fabrics are very light colored and some of the threads are very dark. Those will tend to show through even after the quilting is completed. So take the time to trim and pick off loose threads that are on the back of your quilt. After that, Fold your quilt for the long armor with all the seams inside, so right side of the quilt out. That really helps to reduce any fraying that happens as the quilt is handled, hauled to your long armor, she hangs it in her queue, all that sort of thing. So number one, 
take off any of the loose, particularly highly contrasting threads that are on the back. And number two, fold your quilt with the seam allowances inside to prevent them brushing up against things and fraying. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash stitched by Susan, where for the price of one delicious coffee, you're able to make a one-time contribution. This helps me get a better microphone and enables me to keep bringing you these weekly episodes. Thank you so much for your support, and maybe take a moment now to refill your cup as you settle back to enjoy today's interview. So today I have my sister on the line, and uh, we thought we'd just swap a few stories and just chat a little bit about some of our background. I think it's unique to some of you in that we kind of grew up in a little bit of a throwback to pioneer times, I would say. Right, Mary? Yes, I would say so. Not too many people our age grew up the way we did. We were, yeah. Very true. Quite a throwback. Yep. And we, we grew up in northern Canada, northern British Columbia, and in an area that had no electricity, no running water, uh, no indoor plumbing. And, you know, if you've never used an outhouse at 40 degrees below zero in the middle of the night, you haven't lived yet, have you? <laughs> so we you can check what styrofoam is. <laughs> we can check the box on that one. Been there, done that. Got the T-shirt. Yeah. So, but we did grow up. For, but it was good. Yeah. There there were so many good things about it really. And it you know, it was just a period of a few years in our childhood where we, you know, lived in such a remote area. But we got to be a bit like the pioneers and got to do some of those things that were, you know, building a place and it was very rewarding in many ways. Um, our dad, our brothers, our friends, um, built our cabin and the last one that we had was kind of almost the castle of log cabins, wasn't it? It was two stories. Yeah, it was quite, yeah, it was quite advanced for what we had lived in. It was I would say nice. so. And we were quite a few yes. kids, so we needed quite a few bedrooms. And there was that. But here was the great thing about that cabin that I remember. It had two bathrooms. One was right above the other. And the great advantage to that was you could take a shower. And the way you did it. And have running water. Yeah. And the way you did it was you heated your water first on the wood stove, and then you carried your water upstairs and loaded the apparatus, and then you ran downstairs, and the shower was then gravity-fed. But (laughs) what was the catch? The catch was you had to shower quickly because your water was limited. When the bucket ran out, hopefully you had all the shampoo out of your hair or you were out of luck. (laughs) So true. So true. Oh, my goodness. Good times. Yeah. But you know what? It did, thinking back, one of our brothers particularly, really is an inventor. And I wonder how much those times contributed to that quality in him. Like we made so much out of so little. And I can think of things that he made that really were advanced. Water heating systems around our wood stove. Um, Yeah. He learned how to weld and do all kinds of things. It was just amazing. Yeah. He figured out. Yeah. Well, you had the time. Life was a lot slower, and right. you had the time, and you figured out things. And stores were not handy work. for sure, right? So you may do. Yeah. 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 What else did so. we do with our time? Because we didn't really have many toys to speak of. I mean, we lived on a farm, right? So you played with the pets, the animals. They were your babies. Yeah. Yeah. They, you had unusual pets. Like, I remember I had a chicken that was... We always got quite a, we would get, we had laying hands and we sold eggs, but we would get 
you know, a batch of chicks and they would be laying hens. So there'd be about a hundred at a time. And then we'd also get um, chicks that were meat birds and you'd just raise them six, eight weeks and then you'd sell them as meat birds. But I remember there was one chick that had, he had problems, he or she, I don't even remember which, <laughs> called her a she. Her name was Jackie. And she followed me around or I would carry her. She was my little pet, but she, yeah, she had a little bit of issues. So anyway, she, but I remember her. She never was she, quite right, was she? She never <laughs> was quite right. <laughs> but you know, I don't know what happened to her. Yeah, I just uh, remember. It's probably better if we. Around. It's probably better if we don't yeah. know. But that's right. yeah, we we took our pets where we found them. That's what we did. So yeah. and of course, and I remember, I remember having a doll and then getting scraps or even I I probably used old clothes or whatever. I remember cutting them up and making clothes and fashions for my dolls. Mm-hmm. That was always fun to do. I don't remember sewing for the dolls, but I do remember always wanting to sew. Like, I was always begging mom to let me use that treadle sewing machine, but it was kind of dangerous. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. I was 9 or 10 before she let me start sewing. And then, you know, sergers were totally a thing of the future at that point. But for her, the first step of making garments was to sort of zigzag around all the perimeter to stop the fraying edges, right? So, she would let me do the zigzagging which was very exciting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so our mom was certainly a, a crafter. And wouldn't you say she did like a lot of the old-fashioned crafts? Yeah, right? she did the knitting, the crocheting, the embroidery, and the quilting. Mm-hmm. She knit, like I don't ever remember, as a child, I don't remember a bought pair of mitts. I always had knit mitts that she had made. So she knit most of our mitts. Mm-hmm. Um, I I know she knit the the boys and dads winter socks that they work you know their work socks were right wool wool socks big chunky wool socks but they were warm right and, I mean wool has know, a number of properties yeah yeah that were great for that and some years in there we had our own sheep too and so mm-hmm. she would process the wool right from you know shearing the sheep to washing it to carding it which is kind of like combing it combing all the fibers getting all the fibers going one direction right yeah. right and then on into spinning and then into making whatever it was we were making and mm-hmm. i think i could still do that in a pinch i think i could still spin spin my yarn well in in my head in theory i certainly could it might take <laughs> just a little bit more to get that drop spindle or whatever to work but yeah in theory i still remember how to do it and then I don't know if you remember, um, we had the hand carters that you used to get the wool, but mom also had a carding machine, which was quite advanced. Like those weren't real common. And she would um, card it and make wool bats. Because it had like a big wheel, didn't it? It would make a big wide bat on a wheel. Yes. So it would make a bat that was about eight, eight, 10 inches wide. I can't remember Mm -hmm. how wide the wheel was. And then about 14 inches long. And now, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm pretty sure those bats kind of, they weren't a sharp edge at the end because the strand. So then you just, when you put them in a quilt, you just, they all just kind of overlapped on the edge. Right, because those you, edges were kind of you, um, like tearing paper. You had that kind of rough edge, right? And they would overlap right. a little. Yeah, it mm-hmm. wasn't a blunt edge that came together. They would overlap and then you'd tie the comforter and that was what we had on our beds is those wool comforters that she made and talk about toasty warm like you know in the north country like we had long winters and cold winters and i mean that was critical yeah 
at night. Yeah, and cause it's, yeah, because yeah, your your house got quite cool by mm-hmm. morning because it was a wood stove, and so the fire would burn down unless someone got up in the night and stoked it. But yeah. usually, you banked it down, and and it was cool in the house at night, and then in the morning when you got up, you stoked the fires and got it warmed up a bit. Yep, got out under your yeah. covers shivering for sure. But mm-hmm. it seems like too. There was a wee bit different philosophy then about even cleaning our quilts and comforters. And maybe because it was so much handwork, I'm not sure. Or just that was the way mom was raised. I don't know. But she very seldom washed a quilt. And certainly yeah. those wool bats, you couldn't have washed them. They would have all felted into weirdness. Yeah. Um, so yeah. we would like air all the quilts off the beds in the spring and you would leave them out in the wind and the sun all day, right? And that was kind of how yeah. you cleaned the bedding. Yeah. It, yeah, they certainly, I don't think mom ever washed any of the wool comforters. I don't think you could have washed them. Maybe you could spot clean them, but I don't think you could have washed them. So yeah, that was how they got cleaned is they got hung out on the line and aired. Right. And a few times a year, but I certainly know in the spring, as soon as there was some nice weather, the bedding was out on the line, blowing in the breeze. Nothing prettier and than a row of quilts on the wash line, right? And nothing smells better than crawling into a bed after you're, they've been out in the fresh air, too. That is true. And, you know, if you've never experienced that, it is inexplicable. But there's nothing like drying sheets on a wash line and then bringing them in. They smell incredible. And, you know, yeah. the air doesn't seem to have any fragrance to it, but the sheets do when they come in. Yep. Yeah. Especially if you live in the, in the country where you you have flowers and you mm-hmm. have, uh, you know, in the fall, you may have smells of hay or, True. you know, drying grasses Leaves or whatever. Or you yep. just have, a, yeah, you have all those different scents. And then somehow that gets into the fabric. And yeah, it's quite amazing, that scent. Well, that was our potpourri. That was our potpourri. <laughs> <laughs> so winters winters were very long. And I certainly in my memory, quilts figured large. You know, we didn't have rotary cutters or Ulfa mats or anything like that. So it was very much a matter of cardboard templates and tracing the pieces one at a time, right? Yes. Yeah. Templates made with the cornflakes, the cardboards from the cornflake box or something like that. That's That's right. Because I think our cutting templates were made from those and also the hand quilting templates. Yes. And they would get passed around from, you know, woman to woman, these different rose Mm -hmm. designs or twists or things that that we used for quilting. Well, I think it's quite common and I don't think it was just mom that had them is that the iron one, they called it, you know, that, that you would put on borders. It looked like the old iron. It's kind, kind of like of the a, shape in a double wedding ring quilt, right? That Melanie yeah, slash yeah, iron shape. Yeah. Yes. And you would either a double line or just a single mm-hmm. and overlap them. And yeah. So yeah, I have all those. Quilts. So mom would piece the quilts again from these little individual pieces. And then she was a hand quilter. And I think that that was just a part of the fiber of our family i think like mother aunt grandmother great grandmother i think if you looked at us under a microscope we'd have quilting thread in our dna don't you think yes yeah, certainly cuz yeah there's so many that that did it they and a couple of them did it as a way of making a living they did the hand quilting so yeah that's true because certainly. i remember aunt mary doing that I don't know if you're her Mm -hmm. namesake or not, but anyway, Aunt Mary, and she would charge for her hand quilting by the yard of thread that 
that it required. So if there was more quilting, it cost more, you know, if it was more dense. Yeah. Yeah. The dancer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that, yeah, she would do that. And her stitches were so meticulous, like yeah, just perfect stitches. And I remember uh, my cousin, when we'd get together and do quilting bees, you know, you, if you would get around a quilt and you'd spend an afternoon or whatever quilting. And so my cousin was always like, don't be under there critiquing my bottom, you know, checking her stitches underneath. <laughs> right, because that so was that the was, test, the test of a quilter, right? If your stitches look equally good, both upper and lower. Underneath, yeah, yeah. It, it's okay. Yeah, it's one thing if they look good on top, but you get underneath and how does the back of the quilt look? So don't be critiquing my bottom. <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs> so, sakes, such good yeah. memories. And the, the quilting frames that we used... Well, nowadays you see so much hand quilting being done with like a lap-sized kind of hoop or that sort of thing. Yeah. But in our yeah. memory, we had a quilt-sized frame. So it was kind of four slats the size of whatever quilt you were working on. And they overlapped at the corners. And so you would stretch the backing across those four slats and tack it all down and lay on your batting and, and lay on your top. You'd use C-clamps in the right, corners. Right, to hold the corners. Hold. Hold the corners in the and appropriate then, shape, and so then yeah. when you went to quilt, your quilters would sit on two sides of it, and then you know you would quilt kind of to arm's length, and then roll in those sides, and then quilt to arm's length again, and work your way toward the middle of the quilt. So it was kind of a whole room occupation, and it was getting mm -hmm. kind of high tech when when some of the women got you know pulley type apparatuses to pull them up to the roof during the daytimes or whatever, and then lower them when they were ready to quilt. Yeah, get them out of the way. Well, because they often did that in their, that was set up in their dining room or their living room mm -hmm. or whatever. So guest and, comes over, quick, get the quilt up yeah. out of the way so you could sit on the couch. Yeah, and they were literally so. room-sized. Mm -hmm. And I certainly do remember quilting bees, which, you know, nowadays you see in historical books, but they were in our childhood still. So, you know, a mm -hmm. group of neighborhood women would get together and quilt all day and you'd just break a little for lunch and, you know, bring your own thimble. And it was kind of like the quilting retreats that people do now. It's you would true. Do, it, you would do a quilting bee and you'd get together as many because you could usually get, um, depending on the size of the quilt, but four ladies would work on a side. So you mm -hmm. could get like eight of them working. You could work from the ends a little bit. You could do enough that your arms reach in, but not too far. Yep. So you could have like eight ladies working on a quilt. Well, you only have to do the section in front of you, arm's length. So, you know, what, you know, a couple hours and, and you could get a lot of quilting a lot done. done. Yep. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's true. And you're exactly right. That's very much like the retreats that you see happen now. And so there's that continuity again. Like we have the same need to be together and to be creative still. That has not yeah, changed. The community of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we were we were talking briefly the other day, you and I were on the phone, talking about the this kind of hashtag, if you will, that's floating around lately. People are talking about slow stitching, which I feel like, too, is a recognition of the value of taking the time to slow down and not churn out finished products, but just to do something for the joy of it and the pleasure in creating. Yeah, it's just the process. It's more enjoying that whole process of slowing down and just relaxing and doing something as opposed to churning out, you know, fast mm -hmm. quilts all the time. But I know, mean, just, just thinking about it lowers enjoying. my blood pressure. Really? <laughs> <laughs> 
I have so many projects. I was just thinking about it. I don't have enough days anymore to uh, get them all done of all the things I'd love to do with slow stitching. You know, thinking about our, like my wedding dress is sitting in a box and our mother's wedding dress is sitting in a, in a hope chest here, a cedar lined hope chest. And, you know, it's come out once or twice in my lifetime that I remember. And I'm thinking, you know, what could we do with that, with the slow stitching and make some, some sort of, pretty wall thing that could be out and enjoyed you know make it maybe make a, a couple different pieces so that the grandkids could it it could be enjoyed because it sitting in the trunk is yeah yeah what is it doing right I agree completely so. enjoyed and the stories that go with it to be told and when it's visible mm-hmm. as you say if it was something that were to hang on the wall the stories would get told and that's the whole point mm-hmm. of it. Where as it stands now, you know, it's just it's just in a chest and no one gets to hear those stories. So that would be a way to get them visible. So those dresses yeah. are one thing. Between us, we have a whole ton of vintage handkerchiefs too, which are oh, yeah. gorgeous. Some of them are absolute works of art. I can't imagine that anyone actually blew their nose into them. Well, Surely the, not. some of them that I have from my, my husband's grandma... Um, she was a very, I, I think she was a regal lady. She like, she was just so put together and she was just an amazing lady. But some of the handkerchiefs she has, they're all still in these absolutely adorable little boxes that she was gifted with. And the little note that she got from some friend oh is in there with it. How, you know, my mind is like, how could I? display that somehow because that to me is what's so cool Mm -hmm. is to look at this and see this little you know very pretty little box and then the inside is this gorgeous gorgeously handcrafted hanky and then a little note you know to Bessie and the dates on some of these well she was born oh now I have to think early 1900s Mm -hmm. um 1901 maybe so, yeah, like she and some of those probably were given to her in her teens and early 20s, I would think. And so they're old. You're right. Such treasures. Okay, we'll have to put our thinking mm-hmm. caps on because there must be a beautiful way to display those. So if any listeners have any great ideas, we'd love some feedback on that. Ways to display vintage textiles that, mm-hmm. you know, tell their stories keep their stories intact, and maybe even our mixed media, right? You're talking about beautiful cards, boxes, things like that, and just ways to make that beautiful, to pass on to future generations. Well, okay, so I was thinking the other day, I do a lot of walking, and my mind gets going when I'm walking. I have all these ideas, but I was thinking, could I take those notes that were written to her and somehow copy that, photocopy that onto fabric? So that in my whatever I do with it, I can display the hanky and the note in a fabric mm-hmm. and work that into what I'm doing. Because mm-hmm. the paper itself, you know, if it gets handled, it's going to disintegrate, right? Eventually, right. and that ink and stuff. But if I could somehow copy that so you actually have their handwriting and put that in, that would be really cool. So, so to capture yeah. the image, basically, then. Cap- yeah. Because the, the yes, thing is going to wear image. out, but to capture the image. And put that with the hanky so mm-hmm. that that would somehow be. Mm-hmm. 
Good ideas. I'm sure somehow I'm going to do some sort of a wall art with some pretty hankies and a few of those notes. Because to me, those notes are what are just so yes. amazing. They're right? so personal. Yes. Yeah. And that so. is very, that's very personal history for sure. Yeah. For yeah. sure. And I'll have to make a couple of them because I have to make some for Ken's sister. And, yeah. Right. Multiples. But. Multiples. The, the longer it. we wait, the more we'll have to make because there will be more granddaughters and great granddaughters. <laughs> well, I don't know as those are going to get passed. She can pass it to her daughter. Gotcha. I'll just make it for Grandma Bessie's grandkids. Grandkids. There is what go. I was thinking. Yeah. So it would be like, you know, Kath and her cousin. Because there's, there's not very many girls on that side of the family. There was a lot of boys. So it would just make it for the girls. Just a few, yeah. Grandma Bessie. And then it. they can pass it on to their right. grandkids. Right, yeah. Well, we were talking a few minutes ago about the quilts that mom made. And I was thinking of one specifically, speaking of quilts being passed on or being part of history. Um, I must have been, I don't know, maybe 10 or 11. And I remember one winter her working long term on this particular quilt. Of course, we're Canadian. So it had um, the Canadian provincial floral emblems embroidered on the blocks. And then there were red maple leaves. I mean, predominantly the quilt was red and white. And in the center, yeah. I remember that embroidered block was quite ornate. I remember mom doing that all herself. She wouldn't hand that off to us at all. But there was lots of gold and satin stitching. Yeah, it, and it, it was, was kind of the British emblem, right? It Was, was the, it the British coat of arms or the Canadian? It's the Canadian, but because we came from the British. So Part of the Commonwealth? To, Part of the Commonwealth, yeah. I think, is what it was. Yeah, that could that very well be. That original one, yeah. Because that big, the center one was very ornate. Yeah. Yes. But she let us embroider some of the provincial ones. Yes. And, so, you know, kind of hone and, our embroidery skills there. Yeah. So that quilt, of course, she went on to hand quilt it because we hand quilted everything. And then you tell the story of where we think it went. So then she's, she ended up selling that. And there was a, there was a, we lived along the Alaska Highway and there was a restaurant up the highway that was run by people that we knew and they sold, sold handicrafts in there. So anybody could, that would made their handicrafts could sell it there. And so she had that quilt there for sale. And apparently we never have been able to verify this, but a, a gentleman was traveling through from Ottawa and he worked in the Parliament Building. So he bought it and he was going to display it in the Parliament Buildings in Ottawa. But we've never been able to prove that. We have searched it but not found that out. So anyway, that's where it, what happened to that quilt. It got sold. We think she sold it for about $1,000. So really, Which, when you, you know, in the early 80s is not bad. Not bad. Yeah, I think it was probably pretty good. I couldn't even count the hours that went into it, mind you. But... Right, right, because just the embroidery mm -hmm. on the blocks and then the quilting. I remember the quilting she did was quite, uh, um, on the blocks that were, it was one inch diamond. Cross hatching, yep. Cross hatching between some of the embroidery blocks and stuff. So that's a that's lot quite, of quilting. That's a lot of quilting for hand stitching. Mm -hmm. Sure so. is. Sure yeah. is. And it was a big too. It was queen size. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just a throw size. It was a queen. Mm-hmm. So quite large. Well, yeah. it, it would be so lovely if we could lay our hands on that. I know I've gone so far as to contact the curator in the Parliament buildings who handles, you know, display items. 
and um, the lady that I spoke to, you know, it was it was before her tenure, and so she had no records, and she searched for me and couldn't find records of that quilt. So we don't know for sure, but I don't think that it was just you know urban legend, if you will, because I've talked to people who were at that gift store at that time, and they remember the same thing. So anyway, maybe one yeah. of these days we'll get lucky and it will resurface again. I have no idea I if know. mom attached a label of any kind. Labeling was not as common then. So I don't know if her name or initials or anything would be on it. But I do know we have pictures of it. And I remember some variations from, it was a published pattern, you know. And she did some variations on it, which would make it identifiable. So maybe one day. I have the pattern. I keep saying one day I'm going to make it again. But Do you think our our girls would be willing to do that all one winter with us? Embroider with us? I know. That would be the thing. (laughs) That that would be a fun project, though. You and I could split it between us. That would be kind of fun. We could. You take the big center block. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. <laughs> you can't you can't see Mary's evil grin, but it's there. Anyway, well, this has been so fun chatting over old times and these memories. I mean, honestly, these stories are the things that make quilters that make you know our craft unique and so pleasurable. And some of my life lessons, if you will, I've learned from my mom and some of my sensibilities surrounding quilting. I was thinking the other day of her thread drawer. You know, she, we, we, we did live on a, on a budget, on a tight, tight budget. And she would just pick up thread, whatever thread was on sale at the department store and make a quilt with it. And now we tend to get a little, um, choosy about the threads that we use you know it's got to match the quality of our fabric or it's got to be long fiber puma cotton or whatever the case may be but the truth of it is not every quilt is made or will be an heirloom most quilts are just made to be loved and used and washed and worn right hauled with our kids to college or wherever and that's what we make them for and the truth is we can make that with pretty simple ingredients right yeah, yeah. So that's yeah, one you, of well, my... you, the the and that's the thing about quilting is it can be as technical and as detailed as you want it, or as simple as you want it, and it still is beautiful. That's honestly a good point because there are women who are really, really artists in the work that they do. It they, might be are. elaborate applique or embroidery or or even mm-hmm. hand quilting. And good for them. Like, of course, they want top-notch products, you know, top-of-the-line uh, yes. products for what they're doing. Yes. But yeah. for the average yeah. quilt, use what you've got, whatever fabric you've got, whatever thread you've got, and sew a little love into the stitches. And enjoy the process. And enjoy the process. And it'll be warm yeah. either way. So. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much, Mary, for joining me. This has been great fun to go down memory lane with you. Well, thanks for having me. All right. We'll do it again sometime. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning into the show. For information on classes I offer or quilting services, please see my website, stitchedbysusan.com. If you're a long-arm quilter and looking for freehand tips, take advantage of the live and unscripted episodes on my Facebook page, Stitched by Susan. Replays are also available on my YouTube channel, also Stitched by Susan. And if pictures are your preference, check out my Pinterest galleries of edge-to-edge and custom quilting projects. 
So until next time, may your sorrows be patched and your joys be quilted.